the dress code of the people. So if you happen to see some of the, I remember my parents, my dad, my mom, when I when we were young, in the whole China, everybody wear the same style of clothing, and same color. You can't imagine that actually if you haven't seen it in person. But then gradually,、uh, in towards the eighties, nineties, things just changed. So you are allowed to have more freedom, and the li- uh, uh, living standards are growing so so much better. And then the variety comes in, the color comes in, and then you started to see、um, the goods from. The, from the、uh, west, from Japan, from everywhere, started pouring into the country. I still remember the first time I、uh, tasted the Coca Cola in a glass bottle, and、uh, you have to go to a special shop to buy it. And、uh, there was some it's quite an experience. I still remember the taste of that first bottle until today. Welcome to the immigrant experience in America. An immigrant human library, where we amplify and humanize the experiences of immigrants in the United States and around the world. Listen in as we add another story to our immigrant human library. Today we have for you our second international guest of 2023.、Uh, his name is Liu Liu, joining us from the United Kingdom. Welcome. Thank you, Simon. Thank you very much for inviting me to this program, and uh, uh, welcome to the listeners. Awesome, awesome! I'm looking forward to sharing your story with our, our listeners around the world. So, Liu, am I pronouncing your name correctly? It's Liu, correct? That's right. Yes, it's Liu Liu. That's correct. Very good. Can you tell us a bit about your heritage and where you're from, and how you ended up in the UK? Sure,、um, I grew up、uh, in the southwest part,、uh, southwest part of the country in China. So I don't know if、uh, any of you have ever looked at the map of China.、Uh, it looks like a big chicken. So the、um, the most familiar places you hear a lot, like Hong Kong, Taiwan, it's on the south side. So、uh, Taiwan is like、uh, like the chicken feet, and Hong Kong is around the、uh, tummy area. So I always say to people, I'm made in China, and、uh, also from the best part of the chicken is the chicken's bottom. <laughs> it's <laughs> a indeed it's a a province called the Yunnan province.、Uh, the city is called Kunming. So the province itself borders with、uh, Myanmar or Burma and Vietnam, and the city I grew up in,、uh, Kunming, has a long history tied in with、uh, America as well. During the Second World War,、um, Schneider, General Schneider, set up the Flying Tiger to help the Chinese. There,、um, the headquarters set up in Kunming, yeah, and also it's a starting、uh, place of.、Um, Burma Road from Kunming to、um, to Myanmar during the Second World War. So it's got long history、uh, with American people. So、um, it's a beautiful place. So in China, there are fifty six、uh, minority groups, people groups.、Um, 
and then in Yunnan province alone has 28. So um, I belong to the majority group called Han people. So, um, so that's where I come from. And how I end up in the UK, it's um, I was working in the university uh, language center, uh, Yunnan University, at the Foreign Affairs Secretary. And then I was uh, on the management side. We are teaching international students Chinese. So students are coming from over 100 countries at the time. And then my wife, uh, Alison, she happened to be one of the students, uh, came from the UK to study and work there for three years. And then we we met each other and then we fell in love and we got married uh, in Thailand. That's another story for another day. And then we came over to the UK. So ever since, so I've been here for nearly 22 years now. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. How was it during the transition? Um, the transition is quite an interesting journey, I have to say. Um, the few things really uh, struck me uh, during the transition is um, when I was working in the uh, university, so I ended up with a good job at a, a young age in my 20s. It's a respectful job. And then, yeah, I really enjoyed that as well. It's quite a nice international community. And then when I moved to Thailand, then uh, it was a challenge, challenging time. The story goes, when we got engaged uh, in 1998, actually, or 1998, that's right. So, and then we just came back. I came to the UK, visited her family, and then we went back to China. And then there's a terrible incident happened. Uh, it's a NATO, during the NATO campaign to Kosovo, they happened to have bombed the Chinese embassy. So the whole relationship gone really soured with the West. And then there was a, there was a worry that the country were close up and then they might ask all the foreigners to leave. So we will end up being apart for no matter Nobody knows how long. So it was a panic. And then we dashed for uh, Thailand because uh, Allison's, has, uh, Allison's work has a team in Thailand as well. And I, I happened to know through my work in the university, the uh, Thai consulate uh, based in Kunming. So he gave me a visa and then we will rush to Thailand. And then uh, we lived there and uh, worked there for nearly a year. But unfortunately, the visa he gave me um, is a quite a weird visa. It's like a some kind of a special visa. But then when I, I landed in Thailand, I'm out of his favor because he's out of his reach, out of his favor. Nobody understands how to work that visa out. So I end up living in that country with uh, have to go to the immigration office every 15 days or every 30 days to extend my visa 
in order to to be legally stay. So it's a hugely stressful time. So when we come to the UK, Alison have to leave Thailand three months in advance to come to the UK to find a job to secure a uh, accommodation in order for me to apply for a visa to come to the UK. So the whole process was quite stressful. So we were apart for three months. On the first year, we got married. So uh, we thought we were going to come to the UK um, to have another wedding ceremony because none of her family could uh, attend our wedding in China and Thailand. And then by the time we got to the UK, I got to UK, we were just exhausted by all the visa processes. So, but yeah, I, I was there. And then I started to work straight away. I was really fortunate. I got a job in a hotel uh, in England, it's called the pub, but in the US it's called the bar. So every hotel had, has, has a bar. So I got a job in a hotel bar within a week i landed in the uk so i was fortunate but it was a huge challenge to my identity so i was wondering how on earth i i worked in university and then ended up working at a bar and uh, then i worked there for three months and then by chance i got a job in the organization i'm working in now but again it's a low-end job so I started, I applied for a, a um, clerk level job, but then they don't think I was good enough at the time. And then uh, I ended up uh, in a job working in the post room or mail room for three years. So then from there, I just made my way step by step to where I am now. So the as a senior manager leading an international team and working on the uh, one of the organization's key areas of work. So yeah, it's quite a journey. It's quite a journey. Wow, 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 wow. And 22 years later, here we are. Indeed, here we are. So I'm now uh, leading a team of international staff and also uh, developing my private practice uh, as a in cross-cultural intelligence coach. So, and meeting all those people, including yourself around the world. It is an amazing journey. It really is an amazing journey. Wow. And uh, yeah. Awesome, happy to, uh, I'm glad you shared the bit of a historical background there about your, the part of the China that you're uh, from and also the backstory of what really happens when um, people find international love and then they transition from to another country, how difficult the uh, immigration process and stressful at times it can be. Definitely, definitely. So I think it's uh, it's every immigrant, or if you call that particularly the first generation immigrant like myself, it's always quite difficult. And uh, everyone has their own story to tell. I'm really sure about that. Yes, yes, yes. I wonder, is there any additional information about what life was like in your formative years in China? 
growing up and you know what was what was china like during that season because most of us haven't i've never been to china all we know is the little snippets we get from the media so it's often quite revealing to get it from people who have lived and experienced it so i wonder what you have to share with us sure so uh i grew up in the 70s and the 70s is the time china actually started to um make some uh transition or to make some turning 70s and 80s very important uh, uh decades if you like um so in the late 70s the, one of the major things happened in china is actually china normalized the relationship with the USA. So that really opened the uh, door to the West. And then I think that at the time, the leader called Deng Xiaoping, you might have heard about him from different places, really pushed for this open door policy. So we, I was growing up in a time that you see the change start to happen in the country. So, and then by the 80s, 90s, it's like, yeah, the whole country just started to to uh, grow into a this huge experimental ground on, diff- on a new economic policy. And it's uh, things are booming everywhere. Even you can tell from the the dress code of the people. So if you happened to see some of the I remember my parents, my dad, my mom, when I when we were young, in the whole China everybody wear the same style of clothing and same color. You can't imagine that actually if you haven't seen it in person. But then gradually uh, in towards the eighties, nineties, things just changed. So you are allowed to have more freedom and the li- uh, uh, living standards are growing so so much better and then the variety comes in the color comes in and then you started to see um the goods from the from the uh, west from japan from everywhere started pouring into the country i still remember the first time i uh, tasted the coca-cola in a glass bottle and uh, you have to go to a special shop to buy it and uh, there was some it's quite experience i still remember the taste of that first bottle until today so yeah so i really lived through a a period china moved from a totally closed country to a open country the hence the all the international students uh, were pouring in to the uh, to China to learn to study the Chinese language to learn about the culture and then some of them end up working there. So yeah, it's it's quite an era of change that mm. lived through. Wow, wow! You you mentioned not being able to imagine all the children wearing the same colors or the same style. Mm. I mean, am I hearing you correctly that your neighbors, everybody in the community wore the very exact replica? Absolutely, uh, not just children, adults as well. I I will find a couple of photos, send it to you afterwards. It is, it's, it's all the same style, blue, because that's what you are. 
it's a yeah what you're supposed to wear and we are what you're allowed to wear at the time coming out from 60s and 50s china very restrictive policy yeah wow you're right i i, I can't imagine it but i'm trying to create the sense of what that might be like i guess i i wore uniform going to school all my life for the except for college so i can imagine all the girls in the same style and the same colors and everything just very uniform all the males wearing the same khaki um uniforms as well so i have that's that right that's right there. yes how did you get into the international studies program and that's where you met your wife so the opening started international students started pouring in and you know how did that start your career um so in china uh, i think after the high school um i uh, didn't go to the college or university straight away uh, i went to a uh, translator school and studied uh, english for two years then at the end of the school um, one of my teachers he is the uh, one of the university professor so he recommended me to this place uh, to work so that's how i started my um my career so again i started working at the um reception of that place because it is like a quite a um like a um institute so but it has a its own accommodation and um, the uh, dining area and the teaching quarter everything and uh, towards the end of 90s uh, still foreigners come to china are only allowed to live in um, officially designated area so university accommodation is more or less the only place they can live. So that's where I worked. So I worked, I started as a receptionist. And then within a year or so, I just moved up, become the uh, foreign affairs secretary for that center. Yeah, that's where I met my wife. And I got into this working with international students. I just loved culture. I love diversity. And I really loved meeting different people from different um, countries. Yeah, that really opened my eye and really stirred my curiosity. I remember people used to ask me, um, have you been to this country? Have you been to that country? My answer was always very optimistic. I said, not yet. <laughs> I said, not yet. So going abroad uh, towards the 90s is still uh, it's quite difficult uh, for most of the people. So, but I was fortunate. I managed to come to the UK to uh, to meet my wife's um, a family. Uh, again, a big deal. So it really was a big deal. I have to fly to the capital, Beijing, to apply for the visa, which is uh, China is a big country like the States. It's like three hours by flight. You fly there, you queue for hours. And then you get the visa and you fly back and then, yeah, you go to the UK. So, yeah, that's how I got into the working with the uh, international uh, community, international people. And then when I went, uh, came over to uh, England, I also started, although starting from the uh, post room,
but the organization I'm working in is also the international organization. So it's an international relief and development organization or charity, if you like, sometimes people call that. Uh, we work in 50 countries again. So I had the opportunity to work with people around the world again. Yes, amazing, amazing. That's awesome. Your journey of life path continued. Yeah, it is, it is. So tell us a bit about, you know, what you do today and I guess, you know, some of the work that you're doing with your coaching practice. Yes. So what I'm doing now is uh, apart from being a manager in uh, a, this organization, I'm also uh, running this private coaching practice. So my niche or focus, if you like, is called cross-cultural intelligence. Uh, broadly aimed at managers in organizations and companies. So just to clarify one thing, when, why, when I'm telling people cross-cultural intelligence, people can think of oh, this cross-cultural communication. That is not entirely the picture. So uh, in cross-cultural communication is part of cross-cultural intelligence or sometimes called intercultural intelligence. So the core of this concept is that how people like you and me, first is how we understand our own culture, our own behavior, and why we behave the way we do because of our own culture. And the second level is about how we see or understand or want to understand other culture and then understand the reason behind other people's behavior. So there's this two aspects to it. Yes, so about, about understanding our own and also understanding the other people's behavior. And all those cultural issues are in all aspects of life, if you like. But my uh, focus is around helping uh, managers to um, how they can manage a project from beginning to end, working with people from either from different background, but living in the same country, or from different countries across the globe. So how they can work effectively to understand each other, to build trust and to build coordination and to bridge the gaps of understanding and then they can work effectively together to achieve whatever goals the project they set out to do. So that's really my, my focus and really my passion because, because of my experience working with uh, yeah, international uh, colleagues managing projects and uh, yeah, millions of pounds. So I know what works and what doesn't. So I'm really passionate about helping people if you like to take the shortcut so give what i have learned to those who are just at the beginning of their journey so they don't they don't have to try trial by error and to try it out sometimes with <laughs> with um, consequences if you like so i can really help people and i'm really passionate about i'm really passionate about helping people 
to go through that journey. Yes, yes. And that is such a needed skill because our world has become so connected, interconnected. Travel uh, has increased, the internet and technology has brought the entire globe together. And so many of us are working with colleagues around the world. And and now with people going virtual, it, it appears that it even might become more so in the near future. Absolutely. Definitely. That, that is also, it's a, it's a huge advantage, but also um, gives a, a false impression that we all work under, if you like, speak the same language, English as a business language, and therefore we understand each other, but not, that's not the case. So even the way we um, write email, if you like, so I remember that I started communicating with you. We just started to exchange messages quite um, quite to the point, short and concise. But then if I think actually uh, this is the way how um, US, Europe largely communicate now. But when I'm writing emails with my colleagues in some Asian countries, some African countries, I still have to be really formal, quite respectful in that way. So you start with a proper greeting and then ask them how they are doing, uh, greetings. And uh, yeah, it's quite a, there's a, quite a, f- a formula there you have to follow. Otherwise, they would just still see you as um, disrespectful. And in fact, actually, I had people complain to me saying that uh, English people, I, I don't know this person. Why, why she or he writes such short message to me? I don't know what's happening. So people get offended. <laughs> so these are just, uh, uh, it's quite, yeah. Then all of a sudden you think, oh, actually, we still have our differences. Yeah. Well, and as I think about myself, I am now the hybrid of a, what I call a, a high context culture and now living in a low context culture for 20 plus years. And I go back and forth between both where I sometimes don't expect that formality, but sometimes I feel like I still want it because sometimes I will have, if somebody new reaches out to me and they, for example, just go right into asking me for something, I I would think to myself, boy, this person didn't even ask how I'm doing. And they're immediately just going in for the ask. And so, yeah. and so it, it all depends. I'm still trying to unravel this new person that I've become because I am realizing more and more that I'm very American in my communication and the way I see things. And when I'm communicating with folks who have been in a cro- longer in a uh, high context culture, that their expectations can be different and the way I view them um, is quite different now that I've been living here for 20 plus years. Yeah, yeah, definitely agree. I think uh, for our uh, listeners' benefits, the so-called high-context culture and low-context culture means in the high-context culture, normally it means culture has very long heritage and long history. So you have a lot of the shared experience, shared memory. And people, when people communicate, they refer a lot 
back to the history and yeah, and to the uh, ancient literature um, idioms, so that everybody with very little words, everybody understand what it means because you all grew up through that kind of cultural background history. Well, in the low context culture, that's not the case. Is that you have to really be very factual, very、uh, detailed to the facts, and in relates、uh, with regard to information, because people from different background, if you assume they should understand, then and then you end up people will end up not understanding. I think that's that's a difference. Yeah, it is difficult. To I am struggling like you when I'm、um, communicating with my family and friends back in China, and、uh, sometimes they can be so high context, and for an outside、uh, a person, it's just totally it's like a uh, it's like a code. So one day、uh, within the kind of a, on the social media. One of my friends, he posted a photo of him because he calls himself a、uh, uh, Mr. Ma means is a horse. He posted a photo of a horse with a little bird sitting on the back of the horse. So I took a look at the photo. I said to Alison, my wife, I said, "Oh, it's a shame.、Uh, he broke up with his girlfriend now. He's、uh, he's on his own with a daughter again." And Edison took a took a look at the photo. Said, "How on earth did you get that?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that is a typical example of high context. So you you really have to yeah be in that culture to know what code they are talking about. Right, and it can be exhausting. I think for me, when I was younger and I was in the immersed in the high context, more communal culture. I could pick up on the, you know, the codes and and how people say, communicate without really saying what they want. And you, you, you know, and the and today, I find myself trying to figure out like, what are they actually saying? Because we're dancing around the issue, but nobody's really getting to the point. And it can be, I find it kind of frustrating for me today. As I've gotten older, and you know, my, all my work life has been in a low context culture. To the point, you say what you mean, and you know. But it can be frustrating at times when you realize that people are trying. They're saying what they want to say, but not really saying what they want to say. So it can be so confusing. Join us again next time for part two of this episode. We thank our listeners around the world, and we appreciate your continued support as we build our human library. Please remember to give us a five-star review, subscribe, and share with your friends, family, and circle of influence.